Let's pray together. Father, um, Lord, I come to you in prayer, not just because this is what I'm supposed to do uh, before uh, I preach, but Lord, I, I come to you because I need you. And uh, Lord, uh, just my preparation alone uh, is just not enough. Uh, Lord, we really need your spirit um, to bring your word to life and to change us. Um, so Lord, I pray you would do this now. In Christ's name, amen. Um, if I had one request of the Lord uh, alongside of UK winning the SEC in football one day, um, it would be to be a part of a revival. Now, when you think about revival, you might think of a crusade like a Billy Graham, Franklin Graham kind of crusade. Uh, you might think of this week-long services uh, that happen, but I don't mean that at all. Um, I mean something that spontaneously emerges in a church or in a group of churches uh, where spontaneously with spontaneity, there are all these people who freely share about how Jesus affected their life. Where hundreds, even thousands of people are converted. Where people have a heartfelt desire to follow the Lord and not just heartless routine. Where people sing with passion. Where missionaries are sent. Where people confess secret sin. Where children are affected just as much as adults. This is a dream. This is what I ask the Lord for. And wouldn't it be amazing... Well, it's happened before. It's happened before uh, in our country. It happened in the 1730s and 40s in New England under the leadership of George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. It happened uh, starting in 1801 just up the road, Bourbon County, Cane Ridge. The Second Great Awakening happened just, just miles from here. But I read about one uh, a, a revival that happened in 1953 this week. Uh, it happened in Lubutu, Congo. I'd never heard of it before. I just kind of stumbled across it. And when it first got started, you had a prayer meeting going on. You had a prayer meeting with European missionaries meeting in a home, and you had uh, Africans meeting uh, in the school next to it. Now, they weren't separated for any other reason than they wanted to pray in their native tongue. All the rest of their work they were doing together, but when they had prayer meetings, they wanted to be separate because there's something about praying in your native tongue that's very significant. And those of you who uh, aren't first English speakers, you know that. And while they're having this prayer meeting, as you can imagine, the Europeans, you know, they start at seven, they end at eight. And they get done and they go over to their African brothers and sisters and uh, they're going strong at eight o'clock. Real strong. Uh, they're, they're prostrate on the floor. They're weeping. And the Europeans are trying to get them to wrap it up, but they get sucked into it and they end up being in there for 24 hours. The conviction of sin, it was so intense that people were being physically tormented. And that might seem kind of strange to us, we're Presbyterians, but really if, you, if you're a doctor, if you're in the medical field, you, you know the intersection between the body and the heart, that when the inner state is under turmoil, the body's always affected. So it's really not that strange. People are being tormented physically because of the conviction of their sin. But then after 24 hours, things began to turn. There, 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 it went from this weeping, this conviction of sin, to being overwhelmed by joy. So this happens for 24 hours. And so the missionaries write to these seven other missionary stations in the north of Congo about what had happened. And the missionaries in those seven places, and those, uh, they, they began to pray that God would do with them in their town what had happened in Lubutu. And it did. It happened almost simultaneously. And so you had these eight villages that had this strong revival that happened. And they were able to have these joint meetings 
And I, I think what was really amazing wasn't just the confession of sin, it's not just the lively singing, it's not just the many conversions, but this particular revival also had some serious social consequences. People got sober. Marriages were restored. Debts were paid. And I think most interestingly, uh, what happened was that you had Africans showing up to the Belgian government. They, they were colonized by Belgium. And uh, in, a, in a revolt of sorts, Africans had been, uh, they, they had come to the Belgian government and confessed their crimes and returned their stolen goods. So what Christian would not want to be a part of that? Now, you might be sitting there and it's easy to engage in what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. And that's when we take the position that the, the most important time in history is the one that we're a part of and we look down our noses at all other time periods. It's really just the natural endpoint to a simplistic progressive worldview being chronologically snobbery. So if you look back at what happened 70 years ago and you say, well, that's irrelevant, that's archaic, I think that's us practicing chronological snobbery. I think it also could be us practicing a kind of nationalism, maybe even racism, to only think that we can learn from American and church history and not from our African brothers and sisters. So when you take these viewpoints, you see the events of Congo of 1953, you see them as old-fashioned, you see them as shallow, emotional outbursts of religious enthusiasm. But what if I told you that there's actually biblical precedent for what happened there in Lubutu? I mean, think about it. Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, you've got a revival. You've got three other revivals that happened in the book of Acts. It happened in Samaria and Caesarea and Antioch. They happened in the Old Testament, believe it or not. They happened when King Uzziah, he finds the book of the law. He reads it to the people and the people are awakened to these spiritual realities that they used to be asleep to. You've got it happens with Jonah and Nineveh. And then it happens in our passage today. It happens in Nehemiah chapter 8, revival breaks out. So let's read the first 12 verses together. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they had heard on the first day of the seven month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. And beside him stood Matthiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, banana sounds like doesn't, uh, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. What if I asked you to stand during the preaching? Wouldn't that be awkward? That's what happened here. In verse 6, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Joshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Hakub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, 
Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet. For this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. The word of the Lord. All right, let's do a little review. Uh, This is maybe uh, sermon number six in Nehemiah, so we're over halfway through the book. There's 13 chapters, we're in the eighth one. And here's what Nehemiah, who he really was. Uh, Nehemiah was the equivalent of a general contractor. His job uh, in this book is really to rebuild the walls. He's to protect Jerusalem from the surrounding nations. That's why the wall was to be built. And the wall took about 52 days to be completed. It's a remarkable feat. He had had so much perseverance because there's opposition that came uh, to, to the Jews that they faced from outside of the Jewish nation and from within the Jewish nation. And so when the last gate gets set in place, you would think, based on where we've been, that the job is complete. But it's not complete. The job's not finished. In fact, just getting the the walls and the gates set up means that the work has just gotten started. What's ahead is going to take so much more work than just building the wall. See, what Nehemiah had in mind, what Ezra had in mind, is a godly, mature community. That's their goal. That's their vision. That's what they're shooting for. The wall and the gates, they play a role in that, but it is just the beginning. Nehemiah knows that there's a need for understanding God's word that they're going to have to have if they're going to be a mature, godly people. And you see the need for understanding in verses 1 to 8, and you see the results of that understanding in verses 9 to 12. So let's look at the need first. Now, you get a sense here in these first, this first eight verses that there is a bit of a plan in place, right? Verse 4 said that they had built a, a stage for this purpose. And then you have those two long lists of names that I awkwardly got through, one in verse 4, the other in verse 7. And you see Ezra it comes on the scene. Now, we, we heard about Ezra months ago. Uh, we preached the book of Ezra, and Ezra is making a comeback here. This is the same dude. He's a priest. Priests are the ones who are to handle God's word. This is not uh, Nehemiah's job. This was Ezra's job. And so Ezra is locked and loaded by Nehemiah. He's ready to go. Not just Ezra, but he's got 13 people who are going to be on the stage with him. Those 13 people, the ones that we read about uh, the first list in in verse 4, those 13 people are, are, are translating. See, all these people, they spoke Aramaic, but the law, the Torah, was written in Hebrew. So there's some translations going on here on this stage. And there's another group of 13 people. And those 13 people are out amongst the people. This is a big crowd. And those, uh, th- those 13 that are out in the crowd, they're essentially preaching what's being translated. 
So those people were ready to roll too. So it seems like there's a bit of a plan. But look at verse 1. Verse 1, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Now, I know we didn't read chapter 7. I didn't preach from chapter 7 last week either. But what you would see is you would not see an invitation because there wasn't one. They'd not been called there for this meeting. Ezra and Nehemiah didn't have anything to do with this. These people just showed up. It sprang about almost spontaneously from among the people. They had finished the wall. They had gone home. Most of them don't live inside the city walls. They live out on their farms. And so now, almost out of nowhere, they just show back up. How? Why? What happened? Well, God happened. I think Ezra and Nehemiah, maybe some others even, they had been hunkered down in prayer. They'd been praying that God would revive his people. They know that the work's not done, but they know the only way the work's going to get done is if God's the one who does it. So they pray. They needed God to move, and God did move. God's people moved away from their ignorance into the realm of knowledge as they became acquainted with their story. See, the law really means the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And you know their story. Their story is that God created them. And that God chose chose Abraham, that he was going to have a a people that's been set apart for him. That's Genesis. Exodus, that, that now these people are learning that God's people have been rescued from slavery in Egypt. And then Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy that there's a, a way of life that they're supposed to embrace and, and, and adopt. They hear the story. They're no longer ignorant. And what it led to is worship. But they didn't worship the Bible. The Bible wasn't an end in itself. It wasn't this just a holy relic. No, no, no. Their adoration was for God. You see it in verse 6. Verse 6 says, They bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So you see, God informed their mind, but he also inflamed their heart. That's understanding. If you only have an informed mind, you don't have understanding. If you only have an inflamed heart, you don't have understanding. You've got to have both, and we see them both right here in these first eight verses. But if you're a Christian and you're here today, isn't this what you want? Don't you want an informed mind? Don't you want an inflamed heart? What happens when you have understanding? Understanding is different than being entertained. Understanding is different than the relief from boredom. Understanding happens when the Holy Spirit moves you by a passage of his word that touches your real life. Got a few stories. One is of my dad. Uh, my dad grew up kind of around the church, not, not thoroughly entrenched in it. And my dad was at grad school at UK. You know, grad school, you, you, you've got to do these presentations, right? Uh, and my dad, oddly enough, his worst fear, uh, not anymore, but back when he was in his early 20s, was public speaking. He would say that he was more afraid of public speaking than he was of death. Anybody relate to that? Got any of you out there? Uh, it's really not that uncommon, um, believe it or not. And um, it's hard for me to believe, but this is my dad's story, not mine. So here he is. Uh, he's laying my dad. My mom's working night shift at, at Central Baptist, and uh, he's there alone. 
he's consumed with fear. He can't sleep. He said uh, he's sweating like crazy, and uh, he just rolls over. He rolls over, looks at his bedside stand, and there's the Bible. He didn't put it there. My mom didn't put it there. He thinks that my grandma probably put it there, my mom's mom. And uh, he said, man, I got nothing else to turn to. And my grandma had, we think my grandma anyways, had put uh, the bookmark, you know, that ribbon that's in your Bible? She had put that on Romans 8. And my dad never really read the Bible before. He'd read Romans 8. And he thinks that's the night he was converted. That's illumination. That's coming to an understanding. There's another one. Uh, one of you actually... Uh, there's the, I, I just remember this story uh, of a young woman. And she had a really tough upbringing. She had really struggled uh, to know if her biological parents really cared for her at all. And if they didn't, does that mean that she's unlovable? Did it mean she didn't have parents? And she wrestled with this for years. These, these thoughts haunted her. And then she ran across John 14, 18. John 14, 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And she said in that moment, she knew she had a parent for the first time. She had a heavenly father. And that if he loved her, then she must be lovable. And formed her mind, inflamed her heart. I can remember a personal story. I can remember being in seminary, listening to one of my uh, seminary professors uh, preach 2 Samuel chapter 9. Probably don't know 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's fine. Uh, and it's about a guy named Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth is a guy who's crippled. Uh, and he's a, actually a threat uh, to David because Mephibosheth is an heir of Saul. And I remember seeing how Mephibosheth, he's in his crippled state, being a threat to David. And David showed him kindness. And I remember seeing myself, I'm Mephibosheth, I'm crippled, I'm an enemy of God, Romans 5. I know that. But God shows me kindness. I was awestruck by God's grace to me, sitting there listening to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Informed mind, inflamed heart. Brothers and sisters, what are those moments for you? Maybe it wasn't a moment, maybe it was more like a season. Is this the way that you pursue change in your life? Maybe you pursue change as something that's detached from God's word. And if you do, no real change is ever going to happen. Maybe you have attached God's word to this, but you just approach God's word as more like a textbook. Something that you are just informed by, but not something that also inflames your heart. And what we see here in Nehemiah chapter 8 is that if revival is going to come, it's going to start with an understanding of God's word. But it doesn't end there. Verses 9 to 12 show us that when revival comes, there are some results. And the results that we see in verses 9 to 12 actually very much mirror what we heard about in Lubutu, Congo. In verses 9 to 12, what we read earlier, you, you saw in three different places that you see them either grieved or weeping. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, it says, for all the pe- at the end, for all the people wept. Verse 10. Towards the end, it says, do not be grieved. Verse 11, at the very end, it says, do not be grieved. Why? Why are they weeping? 
Well, it's pretty simple. It's because of the impact that God's word is having on their hearts. God, through his word, is exposing his holiness, his goodness, his mercy to them. But he's also exposing through his word their perversity, their shamefulness, their folly. And that's what God's law does. That's what God's word does. That's why we read it and then we confess our sins each and every week. You begin to see the gap between what God requires and what you actually are. And we call that gap sin. And when we read God's word, when we read God's law, we see our sin. And you've got to see your sin before you can weep for it. And weeping is really natural because your sorrow needs to vent. And the sorrow is vented through your tears, through your confession. And this is just a picture of repentance. That's all it really is. I know repentance is a word we use a lot around here, but it's not a word that you use in your everyday life very often. It's not a word that you, that's used in very many other churches, frankly. And it's not something you even see very often. What you see is self-justification. What you see is rationalization. What you see are excuses. But repentance is absolutely necessary if we're going to enjoy God. Because without repentance, there is no salvation. I came across a quote this week. It's by Thomas Watson. Uh, He's a Puritan. He wrote a book called The Doctrine of Repentance. If you need need something to make you fall asleep, uh, this would be a great one for you. Uh, In it, he says lots and lots and lots of good things. Uh, He's got lots of good nuggets in there uh, amongst how thick it is. But the one that really got me was this. The burden of sin is always worst when it is least felt. The burden of sin is always worst when it is least felt. If that's true, and I think it is, then what does it say about the people in Nehemiah 8? It says that they're signs of life, doesn't it? <laughs> it says that they're on to something. They're on the road, but they've not reached their destination. Their destination is more than that. They, 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 that's why they're told not to grieve, don't weep, because joy has got to come after our weeping. They're told essentially to have a big party because the joy of the Lord is their strength. And there you have it. You've got healthy grief over sin being one side of the coin. And joy over the salvation that we have in God being the other. And it's joyful because in the gospel, God doesn't cast us off. He mercifully brings us in. Your grief looks back at your sin, but joy looks ahead. And the leaders here know that grief's not a bad thing, but it's got to shift. It's got to shift towards joy. They needed to quit weeping and they needed to start partying. Now, if you get real close to Jesus in the Gospels, this shouldn't be any surprise, right? When you get in the Gospels, Jesus is either at a meal, leaving a meal, or on his way to a meal. Jesus is always eating. Jesus is always causing joy to stir up. That's why he's forgiving sin. That's why he's healing people. That's why he's relieving distress. Joy is everywhere. 
enjoys what, the picture that we have in the end. In Revelation chapter 19, we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the marriage supper of the Lamb is where we get to sit with Jesus with a raised glass, with an abundance of food, and we will sing together. And we'll sing the song that says, Hallelujah for the Lord our God. The Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Joy. That's fullness of joy. That's the party of all parties. And this is what we're made for. We're made to feast, brothers and sisters. We're made to be in joyful communion with God. But how is that possible? We're just like the people in Nehemiah 8, aren't we? We read, effectively, the, New Te- the, the Ten Commandments of the New Testament in Matthew chapter 5. We could have read the Ten Commandments. If you read the Ten Commandments, you get nailed to the floor. There's no hope. The gap's enormous. And it seems like on the surface, the solution, the basis for which we can be in relationship with God is repentance. But that's not it, brothers and sisters. The basis of our relationship with God is the blood of Jesus. See, Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose again so that we might go to the feast. And Jesus is so desirable to the troubled, guilt-ridden soul. In fact, the more bitterness we taste in sin, the more sweetness we shall taste in Christ. See, friends, in this text... Really, what happens every single Sunday is verses 1 to 8. Every single Sunday. We read God's Word. Verse 8 says that that there are people that God's put in place to give a sense to it. That's my job. But I think a lot of times we stop at verse 8, don't we? We hear God's word proclaimed. We have the opportunity to repent, but we put it off. It's easy just to sit there and you say, Marsh, you know what? I I know I've fallen short. My conscience is pricked. I come, every Sunday that I come, this is what happens. But Marsh, if I repent, I I might get found out. It might drastically affect my my reputation. I can't imagine feeling any more shame than I already do. And I'd rather have less shame and keep it in secret than more shame and people know about it. Does that sound like you? See, brothers and sisters, this is urgent. Tomorrow might be your dying day, so why not let today be your repenting day? See, the longer you wait, the more sin strengthens in your heart. The harder your heart gets, the less guilty you feel. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous to wait. So in some sense, we should be scared into repentance. But there's another sense in which we should be enticed into it. Because don't you want this kind of joy? (laughs) Isn't this what you're looking for? Don't you want the joy that comes with eating and drinking and feasting and sharing with a full heart? Isn't that what you want? Well, brothers and sisters, this is the table. It's all right here. So come, take, eat, and drink. For joy is here. It is to be had. Let's pray.
Lord, we know that one day there will be no more weeping. There will be no more tears. There will be no more confession of sin. (laughs) Because we will be as we were intended to be. Pure and holy and spotless. All because of Jesus. So, Lord, I pray you would give us joy in this day as we wait for the joy of that day. In Christ's name, amen.